world. Well, if you would turn with me to James chapter 4 in the scripture, that's where the uh, message is going to come from this morning. James chapter 4, and uh, you know, it's always interesting what I I do because we've got 36 churches in three counties that we connect with, and so I'm always, um, when I preach, it's like I don't know what's going on, you know, in the churches uh, sometimes. And uh, but I do try to pray and, and uh, understand what God is saying to me through his word and to bring a word to you. And so uh, hopefully this will hit the mark for us today in James chapter four, the uh, beginning with verse number one, the Bible says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not, uh, do not have, so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, or you ask amiss, to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let me pray for us once more. God, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you'll use it in our lives today as we prayed already. God, that you would uh, open us up to uh, this time of worship and this time of discipleship so that we can be more like our Savior and we can uh, be more like him in the world as we reflect you as witnesses and worshipers. And we pray for your cleansing. And we do pray, God, that you'll open up our ears and our hearts, cause us to be attentive for these moments. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The interesting passage, I think particularly for our times because we argue all the time with each other, there's never been a more divisive, contentious uh, society maybe that uh, we can remember a time in our society than the one that we're in currently. Wouldn't you say that, especially as you view uh, social media and you see how people interact with one another? We quarrel, we quarrel all the time. Sometimes it's lighthearted. We may um, poke each other about our sports teams and things like that. That's okay, you know, that uh, my team's better than your team, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, sometimes we argue over politics, right? Particularly now we're moving on toward the election and we see that. Uh, We argue about the pandemic, should you wear a mask or not wear a mask, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, We argue about eating chicken wings, drums or flats, right? You see those arguments, (laughs) or I do anyway from people and uh, people argue over climate change is it man-made is it natural just a part of uh, the way things evolve in 
history. We argue about the death penalty, mail-in ballots, the NFL, kneeling or not kneeling, government health care, gun control, immigration. You know, when we look at the political things, people argue about all these things all the time. How about us married people? We never argue, do we? <laughs> no, we never disagree at all at home. I mean, married people argue about what? Money? I was looking at all the things that married people typically argue about. Of course, I'm married for uh, 30, going on 33 years too, so. But money, communication, right? These are things we argue about in our married, married life. Children, how we spend our time, intimacy, priorities. We argue about the past, things that happened, or you know, the way we remember them having happened. That's really what we argue about. We argue about whose fault things are, right, when we're married. We argue about being late. Probably somebody argued about being late this morning, maybe, possibly. We argue about uh, housework and the uh, way we divide up, the division of labor, you know, at home, and those kinds of things. And then, what about the church? We never argue at church, right? It's just like um, Shangri-La all the time. You know, we never disagree about anything at all. But, you know, the reality is I put a little informal poll out this week to help me. I already know because uh, we, you know, interact with congregations and often we interact with them when things are not going well. But in church we argue about things like budgets, you know, how we spend our money. Uh, one thing people said, and you see this, that we argue about is a lot is musical preferences. You know, I like hymns. Well, I like contemporary songs. And so, um, sorry. But uh, so people argue about the, you know, things that are preferences. We uh, sometimes in church argue about what time church should be over, you know. I go into churches a lot and there's a clock in the back in the preacher's line of vision, you know. And, and really the, there's a not so subtle message in that, you know, that people have a preferred time to get out of church and you should adhere to that. Uh, sometimes people argue about physical things around the church, flowers and uh, furnishings, you know. I like this church because it's informal and you've taken away some of the reasons for those kinds of arguments. You know? <laughs> but in formal churches, sometimes those are the things that they argue about. The thermostat in uh, churches, sometimes we argue about where it should be set. And um, sometimes in churches they put dummy thermostats in place so that people think they're actually adjusting the thermostat, but it, they're really not affecting anything at all. But we argue about things like that, what people should wear or shouldn't wear to church, roles and responsibilities. Sometimes people argue about versions of the Bible, which one is the right one, KJV, NIV, you know, so we argue about those things. Uh, arguments in church happen about who's in charge at times, you know, who, where does the buck stop, like they say, or the decision-making processes that happen in congregations and what that looks like, and occasionally we even argue over something doctrinally substantive, you know, something important. But most, most of the time it's not. You know, what I notice in congregations a lot of times is we argue over uh, preferential things and uh, things that are on a tangent out here that aren't really central to the 
uh, message of the gospel and the work of God's kingdom. And so sometimes our bickering is harmless, but sometimes it's detrimental to the cause of Christ in the world. And if it becomes detrimental, that's a huge problem. And so I think we have those kinds of problems in the church and in the way that we are in relationships with each other. And so the Bible here gives clear insights about why we fight and, in this passage, how we get God on our side. Wouldn't it be impressive to be able to say, I know I'm right, God is on my side when we have arguments? Well, this passage really does say that it's possible. I'm going to go ahead and give away the end of this, not for you to get God on your side, but for you to get over on God's side. That's the thing. If we get on God's side, then when uh, we're going to be in a lot better place relationally and in, in the connections that God gives to us in our homes, in our, uh, you know, our congregations, in the culture at large. And so if you knew for sure that you could get on God's side, would you do whatever it took to be there? What if it made you really uncomfortable in the process? Would you still be willing to get over on God's side? So that's the question that this passage is going to ask of us. Is would you be willing, even if it makes you really uncomfortable, even if your life has to uh, be adjusted in some ways that maybe it's not currently, would you be willing to do those things? I want to take a look at uh, some things that this uh, passage presents to us as ways that we can get on God's side and, and I think that'll be helpful to us in trying to be missionaries in our society and in our families and all those places. So I think the first thing I can see in this passage is that we, we need to use the right tactic. The right tactic is what it shows us in the first three verses. What causes these quarrels and strifes? And he, he says basically the word that he uses is that you're pleasure seekers and not God seekers. That's what he says. He says, you want what you want, you don't necessarily want what God wants. You want what you want, but not necessarily what God wants. And the word that he uses is the uh, word we get, hedonism. I don't know if you'd know that word, but a uh, hedonist is someone who lives for their own desires. A selfishness that uh, is going to pursue what that person wants, irrespective of the harm it causes or anything else. They, are just, they live for them and what they want. And James, uh, who's writing to Christians, this letter is really written to the church and to Christians mainly, says this is your problem, is that you want what you want. That's, and, and you don't necessarily think about what God wants. And often the divisiveness around us that we see is caused by our collective selfishness and disconnection from God. That's what he says. Where do wars come from? He's not talking about like global wars necessarily. He's talking about wars in community. He's talking about wars in society and culture. But he really means he's using war, I think, as a figure to say strife, division, quarreling, which, again, we see so, you know, so pervasive. It's so pervasive now. It... it you know, it really is destructive to the, our peace. We don't have personal peace, but we don't, we don't have peace in our relationships with each other either. And so he says, where does that come from? This destructive divisiveness that we see all around us. He says, each person wants what they want, but they don't care how it fits into God's scheme for the world. 
They just care about their own, their own want. And so he says we're closed off from each other. And I'd say that's really true. And that's problematic because God uh, gave us relationships for a purpose. You know, these uh, on purpose. And so your relationship to your neighbor and your relationship to your uh, church family, all these, God gave us these intersections in our relationships that he might be glorified through them. You know, so God did all this on purpose. Your life's not a random accident. God's sovereign. And so he's got an intent for our relationships in our life and our You know, the saddest thing to me is that Christians are far too often characterized by the same lack of unity that's apparent in society. We forget that, what does God, does God say, blessed are the rabble-rousers? He didn't say that in the Bible, did he? He said, blessed are who? The peacemakers. He put us in in a society like ours to affect peace. That doesn't mean we're always going to agree with people's points of view, but it means that we can be different in the way that we are so that people still see God even when we have a different perspective from from someone else. And so Jesus didn't say blessed are the rabble-rousers. He says blessed are the peacemakers. And murder in this passage, he says uh, in verse 1, What causes these fights is your passions. Verse 2, you desire and have not, so you murder. Does he mean that we uh, necessarily really physically uh, shed blood? Well, you know, sometimes things may get to that extent, but more commonly I think it's just this is a, a figurative way of saying you're just hateful. You're hateful. You're not kind. You're not uh, characterized by godliness and and so he, he says, you're, you know, you murder. It's a figure for the way that we are, you know, with each other. I'm, I'm, I'm more concerned about wiping you out than seeing God's purposes formed in you, is what he's saying. <coughs> Fighting, warring, envying, murder, all these things describe a broken relational culture. And again, you know, to me, nothing's more obvious than that he could have written this yesterday for our world, but he, writ, he wrote it thousands of years ago because people are people are people. And we just keep being the same way, and God anticipates that. So if we as Christians pursue our agenda with hostility and hateful attitudes, how will we be witnesses to Christ? Nobody's going to be attracted to Christ because they're put off by the way we carry ourselves in in, in our world. And he gives us the corrective here. He says, here's the right tactic. He says, you, you ask, he says, you, you have not because you ask not first. So he, he says, first, here, I'm giving you the, the solution and it's prayer. He says, you should be praying. He says, but even when you pray, it's not good praying, it's bad praying. He says, you ask, not, uh, you have not because you ask not. You ask and you receive not. Because you ask amiss, he says, so that you can spend it on your pleasures. He goes back to the, you know, this idea of hedonism, of pleasure seeking. And so he says the answer for us is to practice good praying. You, you know, we're, uh, we've, we follow a Western model because we're Westerners. You know, we live in North America at this time in history. And so uh, we're consumers by nature. This is what he's saying. 
He says you pray like consumers. Like people that view God as a product. Or God as the source of pro a product like Amazon. You know? God's our Amazon. We just click on, you know, which I do this way too often actually. But he's, he's like you go to God like he's something you order stuff from. Instead of viewing God as being the person who orders the world and has a, uh, a purpose for the world that he wants to flesh out through people like us. So he says you're praying is bad praying. Is it wrong to pray for what I want? No, I pray for what I want often. It, but what's wrong is when, I, when I, my praying doesn't match up with what God, God wants. When I pray things God couldn't approve to begin with. Or that don't take into mind that God has a mission in the world to redeem people and to bring people to a relationship with himself. And so, you know, if I pray, uh, practice good praying, it's going to be prayer like the prayer Jesus taught us. How did he teach us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He says, this is good praying. Good praying always takes into account what God wants for the world. And he says, you, if you ask in order to receive, you've got to pray that way. Pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a prayer that's essentially saying, bring my heart into alignment with your heart. That's what we're praying. You bring me and my will into uh, alignment with you and your will. Well, then God can always answer our prayer. Or he'll, he'll answer them in the way that's best and we'll be at peace with that. But it's also a prayer that's probably going to make you uncomfortable. I think we'll keep seeing that in this passage as we go through. It's going to make you uncomfortable. Because it's going to mean adjustments in our life in the way that we are. We can't keep being uh, the way we've been. We've got to be different people to have our prayers answered is what James is saying. So he says, First, if we want to know how do I get over on God's side, use the right tactic. And he says pray, you know, a prayer that God can honor and answer. But also, he says serve the right kingdom, secondly. He says there's a problem in the kingdom that you're serving. You think you're serving uh, God, but, but he, he puts a, a, another contrast here. Look at, um, beginning there at verse 4. He says, you adulterous people. That's Really powerful, isn't it? That's insulting, almost, if it weren't God that was saying it. I, you know, we think about what adultery is, infidelity. And you know, I, I uh, pastored, uh, you know, one church in this county for almost 11 years and remember dealing with people going through the herd of infidelity and, you know, counseling at times where the, this, you, what does it feel like? Man, it's an incredible betrayal to feel like you've been punched in the gut, basically. And so the church is portrayed as an unfaithful bride. The, the real word it uses is adulterous. Sometimes the translations will make it adulterers and adulteresses, but the original word, why? Because it's talking about the church, the bride. God says to us, you as a bride to me are adulterous. He says your, your uh, passion and your, your uh, you know, the sense of intimacy and everything that belongs to the relationship that you have with me, you've got it all crossed up. So that your, you, your love is expressed for stuff that's not me. 
He says, you're, you're unfaithful. And you see this in the Old Testament too. God portrayed uh, his relationship with his people in that kind of intimate understanding. And then he, you've broken your vows to me. You've broken your covenant to me. I feel like I've been punched in the gut. That's really what God is saying to us. This is how you know, it makes him feel. So J James says there is an imposter uh, that is like a mistress that appeals for our affection. And he, he uses the word or the phrase the world to, to help us think about that. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world is the, is the idea? We don't hear about worldliness all that much. And when we do, you know, maybe we think back when I was uh, first became a follower of Christ, most, some of the Christians I knew were sort of legalistic, if you know what I mean. It was like, you know, you've got to comb your hair this way and you've got to wear your clothes that way. And it was about uh, all the formalities and, and it was about appearance and it, it was about topical sort of stuff, but not heart stuff. And, you know, I, I've heard people say, and maybe this is true, that, you know, when we first become Christians, there's a little bit of legalism in all of us because we're sort of trying to figure out how to be holy, you know, how to honor God with, with our life. But across time, we come to realize worldly, worldliness may look different than we think worldliness looks. It's assuming an attitude about life that is different than God would want for us. And... Maybe it's in our entertainment choices and things like that, but it's, that's not that's superficial, really. It gets more into motives and attitudes. And, and so when he talks about world, worldliness, he's saying there really is an imposter kingdom that wants to seduce your affection and attention away from God. It's like there are two kingdoms in the world. There are, according to the Bible. There's the kingdom of God and the world. And the world is this domain that impersonates stuff that is important and has an appeal to us. But in the end, if we commit to it, it will have been a very destructive pathway. And so it's calling to people all the time. And he says, he, that's why he says this in the strong, you know, when I started reading this, I'm like, ooh, do I really want to preach this to people? I don't know all that well. But when you look at it, it's sort of the nuts and bolts stuff. You know, that we're uh, living this life and, the, and our attention is going to something all the time and it's trying to wake us up to the reality of whether or not it's a commitment to a kingdom thing or is it a commitment to an imposter kingdom. So the world has a competing set of values and principles that oppose God's created order. You know, it, it proposes things like that there is not a God who's creator, that the, that the world is arranged differently than that, its origins are different than that, you know, but we believe God created the heavens and the earth and that God made man in his image so that man, uh, and by man I mean humankind, men and women, are created with dignity and worth and, and value because we're made by this creator who put those things into us. And so when we think about the competing views, sometimes that the world wants to exclude God. It wants to push God out of the picture altogether and have us live as secularists. And so I was, you know, there's a Bible story. I think this is in uh, 
Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel story we're familiar with, how the, the people decide we're going to build this tower and it's going to reach up into heaven. Was that a realistic goal? I mean, no, it wasn't. Why did God get so upset about that, that he confounded the languages and made the missionary task hard? <laughs> it, why did God do that? Because these people were committed to what had caused God to eradicate human beings already in the great flood. They wanted to make a world without God. They, they wanted to celebrate man as the pinnacle of everything. And God says, that's not a world that I'm going to be content to let run its course. And so he interrupted what they were doing. So the world has this set of values that essentially wants to uh, put God out of the picture. The world has a ruler, the Bible says. The prince of the power of the air. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. The God of this age, he's called. God with a little g. Satan, the adversary. So the Bible proposes that he's real, that he was created by God, and that he rejected God, and that he... Uh, tried to you know, create a world where he's a ruler. That's what he's still trying to do according to the scripture. And what James says here is that that's the world that you're in. There's a world where there's this phony ruler running around trying to get a gathering and a following for himself and essentially worshipers in a sense that'll follow him into oblivion, into destruction. And so there, the world has a ruler. The, the world has a an evil character consequently John chapter 10 verse 10 says the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy but Jesus said I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly so the world has a character it's evil it's destructive and he, he says the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy and how many people do we know that are wrapped up into a, a view of life that if they could only project it out to the end, they'd see that it's, it's destructive, that there's no hope out here. There's only despair out at the end of the journey that they're on. And that's worldliness in a nutshell. It's, a, it's an attempt to make a world without God, and it's a world that can never work. It has a philosophy that's empty and deceptive, and human, partially, but also satanic, according to the scripture, it lacks divine agency and power. And there's this compute, uh, competing world that's here. And so when James talks about worldliness, that's what he's talking about. The world pollutes and it divides. It's, this, it's a, a reason for the division is because we're trying to figure out how to live life. And on the one hand, we can live life God's way or we can live it in a different way. But th these two views are sort of in competition with each other. And God says to his people, you're infected, polluted by worldliness. It's invaded into your way of understanding the world. And so consequently, that's where the division comes from. You're selfish acting out of your, your own desires and not yielding to the, the purposes of my kingdom. Not allowing me to, to uh, in your life, you flesh out what it means for me to be Lord is, is I think what James is helping us see. 
So God has a claim on our life by virtue of his work in our lives. When I was studying this passage, one writer put it that way. God has a claim on our life because of his work in our life. He's Lord. You know, Christianity, even though to us grace is God's kindness given in Jesus' sacrifice, so it's a free gift to us, but it also puts claims on us. He's, if anyone, uh, the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So the confession that brings salvation is Jesus' master. He's Lord. And, and so now we're just trying to live this out. Imperfectly, of course, that's how it looks at my house. It's imperfect, but it's my commitment is to live that out, his, his lordship. So, you know, we can see we've got to have the right tactic, prayer. We've got to serve the right kingdom, not the world, but the kingdom of God. And then also this passage shows us that we have to have uh, assume the right posture, humility and not pride. Humility and not pride. So in verse 6 it starts to say, but he gives more grace. Well, that's an encouraging truth. He gives more grace because grace is absolutely what we need. Where The Bible says where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Isn't that a great promise? That's Romans 5.20. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. I'm glad for that because sin abounds all the time. And I need grace in my own life as a sort of a reset all the time. The promise that God made to me is that his kindness brought me into relationship with him and his kindness is what constantly uh, brings me back into fellowship with him. But God can only give where he finds open hands. Pride is uh, like having clenched fists. You know, God wants to give a gift to us, but our hands are closed. He can't give it. And so that's why the, it sets two things here in opposition to each other. God resists the proud, those with their fists clenched, but he gives grace to the humble, those that open their hands up and go, I'm in need. I've got to have something I don't have. Rich Mullins, uh, I don't know how many of you remember Rich Mullins. He died in a Jeep accident, but he was a great singer and songwriter, poet heart for God, really loved God uniquely, and uh, it seemed like through his life. But he had these lyrics in a song. He says, everybody uh, used to tell me uh, big, boys, big boys don't cry, but I've been around enough to know that was the lie that held back the tears in the eyes of a thousand prodigal sons. I think that's kind of the essence of this passage is. We say, yeah, big boys don't cry. We've got to keep a, you know, a, an appearance here. But God says, well, big boys that don't cry are the ones I can't help. The ones I can help are the ones that are broken. The ones that realize their deep need for me. So one thing I know is God is never surprised by the fact that I need help. When I go to God and I'm, I'm like a broken up mess, God was not surprised to learn. It didn't, you know, he, he, he knew that already. And, but, it, you know, it goes back in verse 7 to this, these two kingdoms in opposition to each other. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. And, and I, I think we forget the subtext of life is that there's a cosmic spiritual warfare in the world that's happening. 
Satan has one idea, and, and yet God has the superior idea. First uh, Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be watchful. He says, Be sober-minded, be uh, vigilant, be watchful. For your adversary the devil walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I uh, read one time there was a, um, not a lion, but a man-eating tiger that was roving between the borders of India and Nepal. And this tiger killed and devoured or partially devoured like 40-something human beings before they finally caught it and killed it. And they found out it had a broken molar that made it difficult for it to catch its normal prey. So it's like, I'll just start eating stupid people, you know. And so, but imagine like you're, you get out of your, you know, bed and, and you start to leave for work in the morning and you're going to your car with the mindset that there's a tiger in my neighborhood that might catch me and eat me today. It would probably change how you got to your car, wouldn't it? You'd be hurried and circumspect is the Bible word. You'd be looking around. Well, that's what the scripture says about the evil one. It says, your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's the world that you live in. And we, you know, sometimes we're oblivious to that uh, reality, but that's what the Bible says. So it says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. But at the same time, it says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. But here's the problem. When I draw near to God, this is why it's so you know, discipleship is so weird sometimes, it's so hard. It's like when I draw near to God, God's perfect light. And, and the passage that you referred to, if we walk in the light, you know, as Christ is in the light, we're, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sins. But when we draw near to him and we get in the light, I start to go, oh no. I've got all this yuckiness and all this stuff that I've been you know, comfortable with starts to become apparent. And I, I see the need for repentance and change. And this shows up in the Bible narrative really early with Adam and Eve. What happened when they broke fellowship with God, when they disobeyed God? What did they do? You remember? They hid, didn't they? First thing they did was like, we don't want to be in the light of God's presence. Let's go find somewhere to get away from God. And God comes looking for him because that's what God does. He comes and he looks for him. He says, where are you? What had happened? Their sense of their, their sinfulness caused them to withdraw from God because that's what sin does. It causes us to want to withdraw from God. But thank God he keeps looking and he keeps coming and he keeps pursuing and searching us out. But it, th this is what the scripture passage is, is showing us. It says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Look at what it says in verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. It uses the word double-minded. And the, the word means two-selved. You, uh, you're a person with two selves. You've got this one self that, you know, is, is the self that knows God and wants to be in a relationship with God. But you've got this other self. And that's the self that, in shame, wants to retreat from God. And, and he says that we've got to deal with that. I, I've been reading a book on prayer by a gentleman named Paul Miller, and he says 
All sin involves a sp splitting of the personality. And he, I think he has this idea in mind that's in this verse, verse 8. He says, we first see that split with um, Adam and Eve, like I said, where God says, where are you? And, the, and what they're dealing with is that fracture of the two selves. So when I draw near to God, I've got to start confronting the sin that's inside me, that, that is a, a problem to me. So in verse uh, 9, there's, look at what it says there, this appeal in verse 9. This is not how we think about life. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. There's an appeal to a kind of deep brokenheartedness over sin that can't be uh, faked. It's a deep grief that he, that he calls us to. At the same time, uh, godly sorrow is the pathway to repentance, the Bible says. Psalm 34, 18, one of my favorite psalms, says God is near to the brokenhearted and he helps or saves the crushed in spirit. So we live in a therapeutic culture where the you know, basic idea is, you know, even it's in our, uh, our understanding of what it means to be a nation, the pursuit of happiness. You know, we, but sometimes happiness is uh, not immediately where we get to with God. We get the brokenness and uh, being crushed first. God saves those who are crushed in spirit. And, and so it, why is it hard to actually walk with God? You know, sometimes people make out like uh, walking with God is, you know, an easy thing. But in reality, it's not. It's difficult. And part of the reason that it's difficult is it keeps showing us the, the, the things that are not like God in us. And it involves tearing down false props that we have been dependent on. And when I, here's when it gets really hard. This is my experience. When I start putting the props down and the things that I'm dependent on that instead of God, I start feeling the, you know, the real difficulty of walking with God without my props, without my idols without the stuff that's become a, a worldly fake substitute for the real things that God wants to do. And you start to feel stark and bare. That's how you feel. And you wonder if it's going to get any better. But what this passage says, you are at that point perfectly positioned to experience grace. Because grace only comes to those who have opened up their hands, who have put down their props, who have said, God, here I am, and, and who have gotten down to, like we say, we got down to business with God. When I call George's cell phone and he can't answer it, it always says the same thing. Well, you've guessed it. I'm not available. That's what his voicemail, he probably has forgotten because we set up our voicemail message and we, everybody else hears what we never do. Well, you've guessed it. I'm not available. Well, you probably guessed it too, you know, in this message that it's not about getting God on our side. That's not what this passage is teaching. It's about getting us on God's side. And, and so God is never going to act inconsistently with his own character. He's never going to do that. He's the only perfect being in the world, and God is not going to change for you or me. That's not how it works. 
I've got to be the one doing the changing. Well, thankfully, God hasn't left me to my own efforts and devices. He's involved in this. He's the one that comes searching and says, where are you? But walking with him as a follower of him, which as we've said, that's, that's who this is written to. It's written to us. Is blessed but not easy. It requires constant assessment, constant diligence, frequent willingness to pray like this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the psalmist, David, writing and saying, this is what we've got to do over and over and over again. And of course, it all begins at the cross. That's where it starts. That's where we uh, reject one kingdom and come into the right kingdom. It's at the cross where Jesus himself took upon himself our sin and made it possible for us to be brought into relationship with, with God. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. The apostles in their preaching says, nor is there salvation in any other. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Romans 10, 13. You know all these passages, I'm sure. It's, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be rescued. And that's God's purpose. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And God demonstrates his love by giving us a Savior. And that's where the life of a follower of Christ begins. Right there is at the cross where we, we trust him. We put our full confidence in him. But that's not the end of it. The, it, it we've got a whole life of fleshing this out and li living out these uh, uh, truths and, and living for the right kingdom and learning how not to be a force for divisiveness uh, because that's not God's purpose for the world. I, I love, uh, and I'm finished with this, um, after this, the, in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says that we are ambassadors for Christ and that Christ, God is appealing through us that people would be reconciled to, to God, you, that we're agents, ministers. You know, you think about, well, ministers are people like you and George. That's not what the Bible says. It says you are witnesses to him and that God's purpose is not for us to blow each other away over political issues that may have behind them some biblical truth and reality. That's God's purpose still isn't for us to blow each other away. His purpose is for us to be agents of reconciliation, to bring people back to God, to use our lives to help that connection happen, you know, for, for other people. Well, it's always a, a, a great day to get to come and to uh, be here when George is away. And uh, they're such great friends to us. And... Uh, many of you are great friends to us as well, and so thank you for um, uh, allowing us to have this opportunity, and hopefully these things will uh, have an impact in our lives. And I'm going to pray for us, and I don't know what happens after that, so somebody else will have to take care of that part of it. But uh, let's pray.